All right, everyone. I am super excited to kick off my DFS content schedule this year. I'm going to have updates for you guys on everything we're going to be doing. But one of the things that is going to be a tent pole on the channel this year is every Friday afternoon, I'm going to sit down with JM to win from one week season. Hopefully you guys remember him from appearing on the GPP strategy show last year. It was one of the most well-reviewed shows I did. I got so much out of it talking with JM about DFS, the kind of macro strategy talk is really the most interesting thing to me about how to approach DFS. And they do it so well over at one week season. So I thought this was a, a very logical and exciting partnership. And we're going to kick things off today with a macro look at week one, how to attack such a wide open slate. And we'll tell you guys plenty more about what you have to look forward to this year on the one week season show with Pete and JM. I suffer from a debilitating condition known as atropic shockitis. Peter's one of the greatest depositors I've ever seen. Trust the process. Let's go. Let's go. I got auto matched with Levitan. This is bullshit. If I just go the other way in that 66, I win all the money. All the money. If I had 150 lineups, I'd win too. Process over results. Hey everyone. JM to win. I had to dust off that video. Hadn't played it here in uh during the whole off season, but uh how are we doing here? I've played it like eight times. I love that video. <laughs> I um so I came today dressed to impress. And then uh, we were talking before the show. And once I got this screen up, I was like, people think I'm being serious here. So I've got this suit jacket on for the start of the show. And I think it won't last too long. But I'm, uh, I'm showing you that I'm serious about week one. I'm serious about talking DFS this week. Yeah, and uh, as I mentioned at the top, uh, I was talking a little bit with JM over the course of the offseason and was really excited about what it could look like if we did a more weekly show. And, you know, I, I love talking through the slates from a really strategic standpoint. I think a lot of, you know, the nuts and bolts obviously happen on Sunday morning. We get the inactives, we get the news, ownership settles, all of that stuff is when the real lineup building happens. But getting us in the frame of reference of how we think about the slate, the whole idea of teaching everyone how to fish as opposed to giving the fish is really what interests me about DFS. And I think JM does that better than anyone in the business. And I'm I'm really looking forward to you, to talking with you on a regular basis because I know even last year, an hour show didn't quite seem like enough. And I think there's a lot of stuff we can dig into over the course of this season. Yeah, I think that one of the things with DFS that people overlook is the fact that it's not really about the players. And I liken it to if you told somebody what hands win in poker, but you didn't give them any deeper context about the strategy of poker and all the deeper points that make you a good poker player, that doesn't really equip you just knowing what the good hands are. And it's the same thing with DFS, if you don't understand proper roster construction technique and strategy and leverage and theory, you're not going to have an easy time in DFS. And so much of the content is focused on players because that's what people want, right? That's what they're used to coming over from fantasy. And that stuff's great and that stuff's important, but that's not really an edge anymore. In 2014, you could be better at other people, better than other people at knowing who the good plays were and you would succeed in DFS. 
But as people kind of caught up, it's like everyone knows who the good plays are at this point. There's not a significant edge there. There's things we'll find, but really the edge is in understanding DFS. It's not that complicated and it's a lot of fun, but you just have to be exposing yourself to that type of thinking. So I think that this show, I mean, I'm very much looking forward to it. This show is going to be something where every week we can kind of dig into that side of DFS a little bit and get smarter and smarter each week and kind of bounce ideas off each other. So, um, yeah, man, I'm I'm already Friday's bookmarked is like my favorite day of the week already. Yeah, and we'll we'll kind of let you guys in on what we want this show to look like from a structure standpoint. We both have some ideas of, of some things we'd like to hit each week. This week's episode will be a little different just because week one is the Wild West, and that's what we're actually going to kind of dive into is how to think about week one here. JM, no longer all business, is losing the blazer here, uh, ready to go. What, I have a question for you. What do you say to people because – you know, one thing we're coming off of best ball. I know you guys were doing a lot of best ball stuff over at one week season. I was, you know, neck deep in it this year. And we often talked about how we have so little data on these best ball tournaments, really only two years of best ball mania data with underdog. It's such a nascent sport that there's a lot of theory and stuff still settling on the flip side. A lot of times I'm hearing from people, DFS is so hard. DFS is nearly a solved game. If you don't have simulations, you can't win DFS. What do you say to people or how do you think about DFS in this current landscape where a lot of people do feel somewhat defeated about how hard it is? Well, there's two sides. One is people are just talking about the main slate, right? Part of the, okay, I have, from being in DFS for nine years, I've gotten so much smarter in other areas of my life. And Pete, you and I were talking about this before the show, but just working with people like when I was at Rotor Grinders, the guys who run Rotor Grinders, or working with Levitan, working with Silva, working with you, there's all working with Bales, there's all these really smart people. And you learn things that then carry over into other areas of life. And one of the things that you learn is you're looking for small edges. You're not trying to beat the toughest game. So for example, this year we're doing afternoon only content on one week season. Well, why? Because there's not any really good strategy content around those afternoon only slates. And most of the people you're competing against are on tilt and they're throwing money in there on a roster with their main slate thoughts at the last minute. And so there's a clear and obvious edge there, right? Playing the Thursday to Monday slates, the full slates. And so all the content is focused on the main slate because that's what people want to talk about. And obviously that's kind of the main event each week, but you don't have to play the main event. People don't go to Las Vegas and play the world series of poker main event. And that's it. They go for two, three months and play all of the smaller events. And that's what you have to understand is there's a lot of edge in other places than just the Millie maker, right? Yeah. The Millie maker, there's not going to be an edge. The, the other way to look at that is even on the main slate, right? If you're playing what I call bankroll building tournaments, which is kind of smaller field, midfield stuff in those contests, the, the, the play style is a little bit different than the 150 max. And you're competing against the guys who are running 150 max and knowing what they're doing in terms of how to build for that. And instead you're competing against people who are putting in five, 10 rosters or one to three rosters, whatever the, the tournament style is. And it really gives you an opportunity to play around with the strategies, right? The edge is still there as long as you still know who the good plays are, and then you loop in the strategy with it. It is a profitable, DFS is a profitable thing to be doing if you're playing it the right way and if you're looking for edges and if you're, uh, but even, you know, on top of the whole making money thing, right? If you said, okay, I'm going to set aside 200 bucks for subscription this year and 300 bucks for playing, $500, that's like what? 
fifty. That's like uh, five hundred dollars. That's ten bucks a week throughout the entire year, right? Like that's a entertainment throughout all football season. B, you're learning if you're paying attention and learning about DFS. You're learning so much about life that's going to help you make money in other areas, frankly. And on top of that, you're probably going to make money over time. So I just think that this thinking, it's such a, a negative thinking, right? The reason people think there's not an edge anymore is because they're doing everything that everyone else is doing that used to be an edge. So everybody says, well, this is how you play DFS. Well, no, you play DFS by playing it differently than everybody else is playing it. So whatever everybody else is doing, that's no longer the edge. And now you have to find the new edge. So I, I think that there's still very much edge in DFS. It's just not what everybody was doing five years ago that was the edge then. Yeah, and that is the difficult thing. I wrestle with that too of knowing there's edges out there, but there is something comfortable about playing the main contest, the contest where there's lots of content. I feel like that played out this year on Underdog where we all like playing Best Ball Mania 3, massive prize pool, but it's very efficient. Lots of sharp players in there. Then the super flex contests come out and because there's not a lot of content about it, people aren't quite as into it, but there's a much bigger edge there. And it's kind of this wrestling, do you have the energy and do you have the desire to kind of really study a different game format knowing there's an edge there or is it easy to fall back on kind of what we've always done just because it's easier? Yeah, and it's especially hardest for somebody like you and me because our, we're focused on the main slate for content throughout the week. So we have to know the main slate really well. And then you feel compelled to, if you're going to play these other slates, you feel compelled to know those slates just as well. But, you know, realistically, you have an edge. I have an edge. Listeners have an edge in those slates with just a little bit of extra time compared to everybody else. And yeah, I, I think that, once you get into that habit of constantly looking for an edge, you know, we had our, our kickoff party on, on discord last night for one week, for one week season. And Zandamir was talking about, so Zandamir is our showdown expert and our props expert. And he was talking about how he played basically like has changed his entry fee structure over the last couple of years. And he said, you're wasting time if you're not identifying what you're good at and focusing on that. And so it's, it's like, you have to figure out where you're most profitable and then focus on that style of play and then kind of expand from there. And then that allows you to grow bankroll. So like I found early on that I was good at small field contests. And so it was like $27, hundred entry contests. And then pretty quickly you're in $200, hundred entry contests. And then pretty quickly you're in thousand dollar entry, hundred entry contests, because you're able to hit these places you're good at. Same thing, you know, I realized, well, I'm good at small field stuff. So small field qualifiers, I started hitting small field qualifiers very early on. I wasn't going to go win a qualifier with 20,000 entries because that wasn't my strength at the time. But I could go in a qualifier with 70 entries and know pretty comfortably that across 35 or so slates, like my EV was going to play out and I would win that seat. So it's, yeah, again, finding what you're good at and focusing on that instead of just trying to focus on what everybody else is focused on. Just so people who maybe aren't familiar with one week season, if you had to give like an elevator pitch or, or even kind of describe how you guys think about DFS, and I have my maybe my own terms I could put on it of how I would kind of label you guys, but I, I'm curious how you kind of summarize, I guess, the one week season worldview or, or how you see, you know, DFS. Yeah, I've got a, a nice little backdrop that's coming here <laughs> soon that'll say, uh, it says, have a boat, we'll teach you to fish. And that is really the focus on one week season. When I started one week season, 
I, it was it was kind of a time where a lot of people were leaving roto grinders and trying to take other people with them. So I remember I had a call with Cam and Cal and told them I was starting one week season. And one of the first questions Cal asked was like, are, are you trying to take people with you or are you just doing this on your own? Before, before I say good luck, like do a great job <laughs> if you're taking people with you. And and it was like, no, I want to start this on my own. And, and I want it to be my concept at the time was that it would be a supplement subscription to other sites yeah. in terms of like, you have a subscription to Roto Grinders or wherever, but you also use one week season to learn how to play DFS. Now, over time, OWS has grown into a much bigger site. and We're basically a complete full subscription now. But the whole idea all along was like, this is a subscription that nobody else is offering. This is a site nobody else is offering and that everybody needs. And it can be your second subscription because you need to learn how to play DFS. And so, yeah, we focus on slate prep and we have the NFL edge and if you're still watching us 12 minutes in, everything on the site's free week one. So if you're not sure if one week season is for you, go check it out. One thing that I often say is it's not for everybody, but because of that, the people it is for, it's really for. Like our core audience is the most loyal audience I've ever seen because if it's for you, it's really for you. So you'll know pretty quickly if the site's not for you, but check it out. Everything's free week one, including ownership projections, cheat sheet ownership projections, tools, and so on and so forth. But yeah, we want to focus on like slate prep, sure. But we also more than that want to focus on how do you play DFS? How do you win at DFS? What is the theory behind DFS? What is the, how do you put together a roster that is going to be profitable over time? That if we played out the slate a hundred times, you would make money, not because of the players on the roster, but because of the way that the roster is put together. And obviously that's something that we'll talk about a lot throughout the season. If if you're watching this and you're like, what does that mean? Um, you'll know within a couple of weeks really what that means. Yeah. And what I remember when I talked to you on the show last year, one of the kind of light bulb moments of just like, holy cow, there's this entire different plane of existence about how you can think about DFS is like, I was very much, you know, very focused on ownership percentages and product ownership. And I was, you know, good about getting my thresholds in, but what I wasn't doing was thinking through the implications of every decision you make. And every time you put a guy in your lineup, there's implications there. There's obvious ones. I'm betting on this team. And then there's not so obvious ones, even in the negative space. By playing this guy, you're not playing this other quarterback. What does that mean? And you really got me thinking in a way of almost a decision tree thing of if this then what? And almost having that narrative through line and not in like, oh, this is just a narrative, but actually what are the narratives that play out if this lineup wins? That really reoriented me in a way that I found very valuable that I hadn't kind of experienced from any other DFS concept content. And that ultimately what got me so excited about getting to talk to you each week is really fleshing out those if then statements and thinking through lineups from this holistic perspective. Yeah, you you had said too, when we talked about this show, you'd said, we'll probably do a lineup build at the end of each show. And that way we can walk through this decision tree type thinking. But some examples for anyone who doesn't know what, what we're talking about here is like, it's not just this guy's low owned, this guy's high owned. It's how does this guy play off of everything else on the slate? So an easy example this week would be Michael Pittman and Matt Ryan. It's not just that they're low owned. It's that Jonathan Taylor is going to be high owned. And if you're pulling this lever that Jonathan Taylor is having a bad game, it probably pushes up this other lever that these guys are having a good game. But then you take things a step further. Well, if I'm not taking Jonathan Taylor, 
then am I taking Derrick Henry? Am I taking Christian McCaffrey, right? If you have a, a non-Jonathan Taylor team, if you have a, if you have a Jonathan Taylor team, you probably don't have Christian McCaffrey or Derrick Henry. I'll say it like that. So then you also know that your Matt Ryan, Michael Pittman team becomes that much more valuable because um, a Matt Ryan, Michael Pittman team that is doing well means that Jonathan Taylor rosters are doing poorly. And you can further leverage that by taking another high price running back that those rosters don't have. And so what we want to basically do is not say who's going to have the best score, right? Like Bales always said, DFS is not a game of maximizing points. It's a game of finishing in first place. And so we want to think about if, if this roster is doing well, what's my clearest path to first place? Not what do I think is going to happen, but what story would fall into place that this roster, so that every threshold you're losing more and more people. So I'll, I'll go into this real quickly. One of the, I think one of the really good examples, we're coming off best ball season. And I think a good example of this type of thinking is I was doing the Mastiff drafts uh, on mm. underdog, the $2,500, 12. So it's a 12 team and there's going to be six leagues. And it's pretty easy to advance. It's like top third advance, top half advance, top third. And then there's four teams in week 17. And so everybody's kind of playing it relatively safe, right? Everybody's taking the guys who with, with certain volume and everybody's taking their stacks and everybody's kind of stacking players from the same team a little bit. And, and everybody's being super sharp because it's a $2,500 entry. But you also have to think, okay, if you go into this contest, 12 teams in your league, four will advance. Well, probably two or three or four other teams will get knocked out just because of injury. That could be your team. Nothing you can do about it. And that's where the thinking ends for a lot of people as well. There's nothing I can do about it. But then if you take that to the next step, the next step is if two or three or four teams get hurt because of injuries and they're not my teams, how do I benefit from that? And so what hurts teams with injuries? It's not their seventh, eighth round pick getting hurt. It's their first, second or third round pick getting hurt. So all of my picks, not all of my picks, but by and large, my picks from like rounds nine to 18 were all players who were teammates of guys who were being picked in the first three rounds. And I was even mapping out the other 11 teams in, in like each Mastiff draft to say, okay, they have a player from this team, this team, and this team. And let me try to get all 11 of these other rosters covered by essentially saying, okay, if Joe Mixon gets hurt, I'm covered. If Jamar Chase gets hurt, I'm covered. Right. If if, a, my, if Jonathan Taylor or Michael Pittman don't have the season expected, I'm covered. Right. Because that's what's going to hurt people. And so I want to be able to benefit when those people get hurt. And it's that type of thinking. We can carry that over to DFS and we can carry that type of strategy thinking over into all areas. There's just edges available when we're when we're looking at things that way. Yeah. And, and that's what makes DFS so fun in all the different directions you can go with it because you were describing the Jonathan Taylor example. There's different ways you can leverage it. You can leverage it on his own team, like you mentioned, through the pass game. You can you can leverage it positionally, going to a different, you know, higher price running back, or you can do what we sometimes called right flipping the bill. And if everyone's paying the stud, paying up for the stud running back, maybe you're paying up for Stu stud wide receiver. So there's like this plane, and you can zig and zag and go across it directionally in all these these different directions. Yeah, and a lot of them are plus EV. A lot of them are going to make money over time. And so one of the hardest things is when I did MLB DFS for, I did it for several years and I had multiple stretches playing limited entries, you know, one to three to five entries per slate. I had multiple stretches of two or more weeks without cashing a single tournament roster. That's a whole NFL season. 
So if you don't know that you're approaching things correctly, then you're constantly second guessing because in NFL, you have to wait a whole week. If you're just playing the main slate, it's so easy to get down on yourself. We get people every year, three weeks in who are like, I haven't cashed yet. I haven't made any money yet. What's wrong? It's like, well, it's a three, it's a three weekend sample size, right? If you're not playing all the slates and playing a bunch of rosters, that's going to happen. And so understanding, okay, well, I'm doing things correctly and this is profitable over time, that makes it a lot easier to sustain those swings. Now, if you're playing a lot of entries each week, obviously you get your sample size to play out more quickly. But if you're playing limited entries, you kind of have to know, okay, I am doing things correctly. What I'm doing is profitable over time and I just have to stick with it. And, and yeah, like you said, there's all these different ways you can go and people kind of beat themselves up like, okay, this week, do I want to go with the, you know, do I want to go with Jonathan Taylor? Do I want to go with maybe play off him this way, play off, play off him this way, play with, go with the high priced wide receiver. But the answer is you don't have to beat yourself up. They're all plus EV paths. If they're executed correctly, you just pick one and know that over time, this is going to play out. And we're so results-based in our thinking that it's harder for us to shift over to that. But once you shift over to that, it's like, okay, well, you know, like in your intro, you have the, the trust the process joke, right? And the reason why we kind of joke about that sometimes is because if you don't know that your process is good, you're just going to keep losing money. And so that's yeah. kind of what, what we, like the foundation of what we try to do is help you understand, okay, I have a good process and it takes time for these numbers to play out, but I know that they will because I'm approaching things this way. And you can see it once you start doing it, you see, oh, all these other people who are playing this way are also winning, whether it's just looking across the leaderboards or whether it's, you know, following other OWS members on the discord channel or whatever it is, you're seeing the people who are playing this way, they're posting rosters where they're winning and they're explaining what their thought process was. And you recognize, okay, this is plus EV over time. And I just have to keep firing away at this, but my process is sound. I'm doing this correctly. Yeah. And that, I mean, this is, it's a plague across all of fantasy. I wrote in the fantasy life newsletter the other day with some of my tips about why we want to embrace uncertainty that most people fear looking dumb more than they want to win. And that plays out across all of this stuff where, you know, I, I think about it too, if people post best ball rosters and if someone doesn't like your best ball roster, it's like, think of posting the winning Millie maker lineup each week before it won the Millie people would yeah. trash it. Who's this guy? 2% play. There's no way this defense, yada, yada. And it's and, and when you really reverse engineer, what does it take to get to the top of some of these contests? It is a path that doesn't look obviously logical on the surface a lot of times. Yeah, I had a roster, it was 2017, and I was in Nashville because there was a Roto Grinders event. And uh, so we're all at like some bar together watching the games. And my roster had Isaiah Crowell and Duke Johnson together when they were That's around a 20 And they cost, I think they cost like 7.4K combined. And it was late in the season. It was the week before Thanksgiving. So pricing super tight at that point. And my thought was, I am buying a running back who costs, maybe they cost like 8.4K, but it was like, I'm buying a running back who costs 8.4K and I'm guaranteed 30 plus touches, right? I'm guaranteed like 25 carries and five to seven targets. And I ended up finishing, I forget what it was, like fifth in the Wildcat that week with just like a single bullet with that roster. And that roster still got trashed for that not being a smart way to go. And it's like, if you can do something where, so we were talking about before the show of like, about picking out building blocks, right? If you can do something that actually is smart and everybody else thinks it's dumb, you're in great shape because you're immediately separated from what everybody else is doing. So yeah, if you can play off those it, it trigger emotions where people are like, well, that's stupid. That doesn't make sense. 
you're in great shape. So it's like finding those well, a few years ago, all of Ryan Tannehill's big games, I think it was like five out of his six monster games came in games where Derrick Henry also hit. Yeah. It was all Titans smash weeks. They'd win like 41 to seven and everybody got in on the action and nobody was playing these three guys, AJ Brown, Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill together because Derrick Henry doesn't catch passes. But if the Titans score a ton of points, you're getting all the points because this is where they're all coming from. And they had like five, six weeks where those three combined for 90 plus points and nobody was getting those points. 2018, Josh Allen had a horrible first seven, eight weeks. The narrative around him was how dumb are the Bills? Same old Bills. They drafted this guy seventh overall. Josh Allen got hurt, missed a few games. Started reading this stuff about all the stuff he was doing while he was hurt, working with Brian yeah. Dable. Nobody knew who Brian Dable was at the time. And he came back and had a big DFS game. First game out against, the, I think it was against the Jaguars. He still had a good defense at the time. And everybody thought it was fluky. And then he had another big game. And I went back and I watched both those games. And I was like, oh my God, Josh Allen is to play the rest of the season. Josh Allen stacks the rest of the season. And that was all we did at OWS the last five weeks. And it didn't make sense, right? But we won probably two, three of the three, I guess three out of six weeks, maybe it was. And then week 17 against Miami, Josh Allen put up 42 points, 46 points. And two of the, one or two of his pass catchers hit. Like you get to this point where it's like, okay, I'm winning money because everybody else thinks this is dumb, but it's actually smart. And then you have that week, week 17, where these three players cost, you know, 12K in salary and combined for 80 points and nobody else is on them because again, they think it's dumb. And so, yeah, finding those spots, that's, that's what we want to be able to do. And it's hard. You need that second voice that says, no, this does actually make some sense, which ideally we can be that voice, OWS, you and me, we can be that voice for people. It's like, no, this actually does make sense. If you can think through the numbers and the numbers make sense, it makes sense. And if everybody else thinks it's stupid, even better. Yeah. How do you think about that? Because I do think what happens too in DFS, there's anyone who's watching a show like this, they're well aware with the benefits of stacking and they're aware of the concepts of bringbacks and stuff like this. And this stuff has been proven out statistically with correlation matrices. We know how this stuff works. On the other hand, if the field is all doing this, especially in the small field stuff where it self-selects for sharper players, maybe the correlation is wiped out by how many people are doing it. So how do you kind of wrestle with those things that have been proven to work over time that still might be underutilized in the millimaker, but might not give us as big of an edge in these other contests? I think in an ideal situation, you're paying attention to the contests you're playing in. And so you have a sense of what people are doing in that contest. And so one of the things you typically see in single entry, smaller field stuff is people put their best roster in, but their best roster is like the closest thing to their cash game roster in terms of these are all the guys that I feel really comfortable playing that everybody's talking about. Yeah. So a lot of times you can pivot to really sharp plays that just nobody's on. The higher owned guys are going to be higher owned, especially if you get up in a higher dollar contest. The higher dollar the contest is, the smaller the field the contest is, somewhere in this range where these two things merge, ownership on high owned players go up, ownership on low owned players go down, the most popular stacks go up and so on and so forth. So then you also realize, oh, well, I don't need, in the Millie Maker, you might need the Mariota, Pitts, Drake stack against New Orleans in week one in order to win because yeah, it's only like the 10th or 11th best stack in terms of projections, but the upside is still there and nobody's going to be on it. 
But if you're in one of these other contests, you don't have to go down to that 11th or 12th best stack. You can a lot of times go to the second or third best stack. And there's even weeks throughout the season where you can go to what might be the best stack, but the field is all con concentrated on this other game, right? This game has a 52 total. This game over here is 49 and a half with concentrated offenses and nobody's on it. And so, yeah, you, you have to understand the contest you're playing in. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to limit the number of contests you're playing, right? If you think of it more in terms of, okay, I'm hunting for what I'm really good at instead of I'm going to play all the contests. Well, then you play, you know, these four or five contests this week and you pay attention to them. And then you think, okay, I really like this one. Let me hunt for a few others. Now I've got this one I'm going to play every week. And then with these other three or four entries, I'll go to different tournaments. But yeah, if you can like kind of get to a point where you know what's going on in different tournaments, you can really build for those tournaments. And that gives you a big edge as well. Because again, we want to think, what are other people not doing? Well, that's something other people are not doing is tailoring their rosters to the particular contest and paying attention to what people are doing in that contest. So then you can, you can basically just become a sharper player in that contest than everybody else. How do you, when you're looking at, you know, you're obviously in the weeds on all of these games and these individual matchups, but when you decide how you're going to attack uh, building a lineup, what, where are you, are you looking as a starting point? Are you, where do projections and ownership projections come into that? Are you identifying what you think is maybe the most, you know, mispriced or overhyped angle and figuring out how you can leverage that? Because I think what happens to people on main slates, especially is there's just so many options. There really are a ton of viable paths. How do you decide what is the most optimal path for you on a given week? Yeah. And, and to piggyback off that first, when I played MLB, my best slates were seven to nine games. And so I wrote up uh, the 15 game slates for Roto Grinders. So I would typically play those. But other than that, I was like hunting for seven to nine game slates. And so if you're playing the main slate, and you're like, God, oh, there's too many options. I can't narrow it down. Think about playing the afternoon only, right? Because again, you do give yourself a chance to find your sweet spot in there. Uh, for me, every week's kind of different, right? Week one, and, and we're going to start talking about some week one stuff here, but week one, there's going to be there's going to be players who are priced at, say, 4K and will be priced at 7K a month and a half from now or two months from now. Yeah. And so ideally in week one, I do want to be identifying those players. I want to be finding the guys who allow me to get a roster that will cost 65K to build a couple months from now. Uh, other weeks, though, it's going to be a little bit different, right? Other weeks, maybe there's not as much value out there. I, I like to start from a game standpoint, and I like to start from a building blocks standpoint. And we'll talk uh, throughout the season about what building blocks are. It's not necessarily stacks so much as multiple players from one game that you can play as a block of points. So think the Isaiah Crowell and, and Duke Johnson example, but where you're just saying, look, I'm treating these two guys as one player. What is their What are their touches for one player? And there's different guys that work for different types of tournaments which again, we'll get to throughout the season as we do roster builds. But yeah, the the basically finding like, what are some of the building blocks? Because I know that other people aren't thinking that way. So all of, all of a sudden, I'm already separated from the field if I'm starting my roster here. Another thing I'll do is start my roster at defense. Everybody saves defense for last, right? But if you start your roster at defense, then it forces you ideally to think through every game because we know that defense special team scoring comes from turnovers and defensive touchdowns. So you have to think through every game and think, okay, what could happen in this game? What could happen in this game? And now after you've thought through that for the defenses, you have a better sense of what you think about these games. And 
you're not necessarily wanting to think what's likeliest to happen. We'll cover that for you, right? Like you can read the NFL Edge. NFL Edge is free all season, which we break down every game. We'll tell you what's likeliest to happen in the games. You don't have to worry about that. You can find that basically anywhere in terms of just projections. But think through these games and say, what could happen here? And then how realistic is that, right? It's great to find something. Like uh, earlier in the week, I found Mariota and Pitts and Drake. And I was like, there's nobody else for them to throw to. This is such a concentrated offense. And when I get excited about something like that, I'm like, I'm going to play this on my game changer roster this week. And then you're like, there's no need to play this in a single entry, 200 (laughs) max contest. This is for a different type of build, right? So you have to be able to balance that and say, okay, well, where's one that actually makes, it's just like high floor, high ceiling for this type of contest. But yeah, starting your roster from different points, I think is, is really valuable because then you're just thinking differently from everybody else. Um, Peter Thiel had a quote once, this is not verbatim, but it was basically like the best way to be contrarian is to think for yourself. And so if you can truly think for yourself and create that type of habit and, and rhythm throughout the week, you're going to have different things than everybody else has. Uh, and I think that, that was one of the things that kind of like caused me to stand out when I first entered into DFS. I did the Friday night show with on Roto Grinders with Levitan and Hefe for several years. And I would come to that show a lot of times. And, you know, Levitan's ob- obviously always going to be the sharpest is in terms of knowing who the best like cash game plays are, who the best on paper plays are, who everybody's talking about, who everyone's talking about in the industry. And he'd bring up a player that was going to be mega chalk that week. And I'd say, oh, I didn't. I haven't even thought about this guy. Like I didn't realize that people were on this guy this week. Now I did less content then. So it was easier for me to be that way, but that's the ideal situation to be in is that guys who everybody else is hyping up and focus on that week. They're not even on your radar because you're just, that's not who you're seeing. doesn't mean that they're wrong, but you are also finding good plays that are different from the good plays everybody else is finding. And that's oftentimes going to be your path to first place. And that's one reason I, I like the concept of, the building blocks is because I know sometimes last year and it, it became a bit of a bit as well. There was whiplash with ownership, right? Like content comes out early in the week. People say these are hashtag the best plays. They're often the cash game, highest projected points plays. Then as GPP bros come in and we say, all right, here's the galaxy brain contrarian pivots. But by the time that content settles over the next few days into Saturday, then it's like, wait, did the, our contrarian play now become the chalk play? And so your head's on a swivel. I kind of like this idea of, you are a little bit on an island thinking of these building blocks that could work. And then maybe as a sanity check on Sunday, let's check in on some updated ownership. Let's see what the field's doing. Holy cow, everyone's on my first building block. But this second one that still made logical sense in a vacuum, now maybe this is the play. And I, I like that because well, it is easy to just, we consume a lot of content and you can get pulled in lots of different directions. Yeah. And I think too, one of these things that we, you think about, okay, let's say Jalen Hurts ends up being 12% owned this week. Okay, so we think of him in the vacuum of Jalen Hurts 12%, but if you're playing Jalen Hurts and Miles Sanders and Miles Sanders is 2% owned, it literally doesn't matter to you that Jalen Hurts is the highest owned quarterback. I don't know if he will be, this is just an example, but it literally doesn't matter to you because you're playing a pairing of Miles Sanders and Jalen Hurts. And if Miles Sanders is 2% owned, what percentage paired him with Jalen Hurts, right? You are, if, if this building block pays off, you're now competing against 0.2% of the field at, at most because nobody else with Jalen Hurts also had Miles Sanders. And you know that because Miles Sanders' ownership pr- projection is so tiny in this example 
that there's no way that lots of people have this together, right? And so finding those two, like recognizing just because a guy is high owned doesn't mean you can't play him. It's just understanding how to play that guy. Or even in a vacuum, you can play the 30% owned play. You only have to typically push one or two buttons to really differentiate your roster. It doesn't have to be everywhere. You can have four or five chalk guys and then a few buttons that just make your roster really different in terms of the way it's constructed and the different plays, the different games you're betting on. So I think people either go kind of too far under or too far over in terms of their game theory, so to speak, right? Their strategy. They're like, I'm just playing the chalk guys or they just go way overboard. It's like I'm fading everyone who's popular yeah. and I'm just going to put in all these low owned guys. And there's a balance there that that's way easier to strike and way more profitable. Just to push you on that hypothetical, what if Jalen Hurts was 75% owned, but you still knew Jalen Hurts with Miles Sanders was going to only be Miles Sanders at 2%. Um, like, is there a break even point where as much as you like the play, there is a certain level where, hey, I, there's a better path for me if three quarters of the field has this guy. Yeah, so this takes me back to the Josh Allen one because the it was like what I would do back then was Josh Allen, Zay Jones, and Robert Foster. And you could play all three of them and just know that you were getting this block of points. I think they cost about 12.9K for the three of them back then, like around 11 to 13K. And you knew at worst you were going to get about 45 points and some weeks you were going to get 60. And then again, week 17 that year, you got about 80. But the what I kept saying then was if Robert Foster were like 25% owned, this no longer works as well because you're just saying, I want this block of points. I don't really care which player gets the points. I want this block of points. But if Robert Foster, if all the points come from Robert Foster in that example, then you know your Josh Allen and your Zay Jones are kind of dead because everybody has Robert Foster and you have this dead weight behind him with these other two guys. So yeah, it gets to a point where, you know, I guess quarterbacks is a funny one to talk about because the ownership never gets that far out of control. But yeah, if you were talking about like a, if Jalen Hurts were 75% owned plus Miles Sanders, well, they're not correlated in terms of Jalen Hurts puts up points. So that means Miles Sanders is putting up points. You're saying Eagles score a lot of touchdowns and I get all those touchdowns. So in this example where Jalen Hurts is 75%, well, then now you're sitting in a spot where if Hurts hits and Miles Sanders doesn't, then you're way behind everybody. And so, yeah, you kind of have to find that balance of how much does, does this player have to weigh? Like now I'm just betting on Miles Sanders instead right. of betting on the block. And so you might as well just play Miles Sanders because he's huge leverage off off Jalen Hurts. So yeah, I don't think that there's an exact number, but it's kind of, for me, you know, if you're finding these guys who are lower owned, it's easier with quarterbacks because ownership doesn't get that far out of control typically. But yeah, finding these guys who are lower owned and that you can play in a block is the ideal way to, to approach it. Before we talk a little bit about kind of week one dynamics and how you should be thinking about it, let people know kind of what is the, the cadence of stuff you guys are going to be offering at one week season. I want everyone to take advantage of it this week while it's free. You mentioned the edge, which is kind of a comprehensive breakdown uh, of the games from the matchups as well as some DFS takeaways. But what other stuff can people expect if they uh, sign up and uh, get that going for this free free week? Yeah, one of the things we've realized is that uh, if you go to, if you have a home a home site for DFS or fantasy, that site is intuitive to you because you've used it for a long time. But if you're new to a site, a lot of times you're like, where do I go? There's so much stuff here. So we've tried to really simplify things on OWS. If you go to the homepage, you'll see that basically we have the NFL edge is on the right. 
And up at the top under the OWS tab, or no, under the NFL tab, sorry. Under the NFL tab, you'll find the scroll. So all of your research stuff is going to be in, and, and there's nothing in the scroll right now, but it'll be populated by Wednesday this week. So all of your research stuff, your game-by-game -game breakdowns are going to be in the NFL Edge. And then all of your late week content is going to be in the scroll. So there'll be about 10 articles in the scroll and where it says jump to, you'll be able to just jump from article to article all in that central space. So we try to make things as easy on you as possible in terms of knowing where to go and understand the site. So NFL Edge, in a regular, it's already live. Um, we put it up on Sunday night this week for week one, but regular week comes out Wednesday, Thursday, all the games broken down. This stuff's all free, by the way, even if all, all season long, this stuff's free, the game by game breakdowns. And then the scroll, actually, some of that content, so probably 25% of that content is free as well. But then the scroll comes out on Fridays and Saturdays, and that has all of your late week strategy, roster construction, um, you know, player pool content. But yeah, the uh, the NFL Edge and the scroll are going to be the two main places that you're going to go. And then we've got ownership projections. We actually have, we're launching this year, I'm pretty excited about it, uh, cheat sheet ownership projections, where we're going to have strategy notes on players so that instead of just numbers in a vacuum, we'll be able to say, you know, hey, this guy's good leverage off this guy, or one way to play this guy is this way. So that's also free week one because everything's free week one. But um, but yeah, so again, tools is where you'll find that stuff. But basically everything else is NFL Edge and scroll. And we, we try to make it as easy on you as possible. And again, do your research in the NFL Edge. You go to the scroll and you've got not just your, your player pool stuff, but also your strategy prep so that you can kind of understand how to attack that particular week's slate. Each, I, I remember... Uh, I was at a birthday party with Cal Spears, uh, one of the one of the guys who started Roto Grinders, and he was explaining DFS to somebody. And he said, DFS is basically a new puzzle that you get to solve every week. And I think a lot of people just treat it like it's the same game every week, but it's a different game every week. And this is one of my favorite examples is uh, Beep I'm a Jeep, who it doesn't really play DFS much anymore, but he used to be at every qualifier for every sport. And he couldn't pronounce any of the players' names because he never watched any games. Yeah. He was a national board game champion. He just understood strategy, right? And so basically what Cal was saying is every week you look at the slate and you say, okay, what's the puzzle this week, right? You got to figure out the picture on the box first, and then you figure out how to put it together. And most of your competition is just like, well, let's build another lineup. And so, yeah, if we can kind of say, what's the unique approach for this week? What makes this week unique, which is, what we try to do in the scroll and throughout all of our other content, well, then you're in great shape. Oh, also a uh, one week season podcast feed. You'll, yeah. you'll find a lot of stuff on there as well. But, um, but yeah, that gives you a good sense of what you'll find. Again, everything's free week one. So it's, it's an easy checkout, you know, and if it's not for you, you'll know it pretty quickly. Yeah. And I'll put the links down in the show notes there. All you have to do email address, get an account set up. You'll have the free access for this week. And then if you like what you see, you are welcome to use promo code Pete. That'll get you 20% off. And that includes anything. If you want to sample a one week pass, say in, in week two, if you want to get the inner circle, the NFL props, I know you guys have a props package this year. You also have an OWS for life. If people are, are really sold and want to put a That's ring right. on it, um, that, that promo code Pete will get you 20% off, but uh, definitely just take advantage of the free week this year. And, and you can see what they got going on over there, but let's talk about week one, because this is always, this week is, I don't think I've ever done well week one. I think it's some combination of not being prepared, coming in with some of my season long and best ball biases and not really thinking through what it takes to win 
in week one where it is so wide open and you can build all kinds of different rosters. What is kind of your macro thing of like, how do I get this best ball brain out of me? How do I reorient myself to actually have a successful week one? Well, you, you also just moved. If, if anybody <laughs> hasn't noticed your, <laughs> yeah. your new background. Yeah. The week one's hard um, for you and me because there's so much, uh, you know, I sent my wife and kids are flying home tomorrow night. They've been out of town for two weeks so that I could have 15 hour work days leading up to the season. So it is hard just for you and me in general to be as prepared for week one as for other weeks, because other weeks, you have your whole rhythm to be prepared. So I think that you and I are going to be at a tip, typically going to be at a slight disadvantage in week one anyway. But I, I think that the big thing is finding the, knowing what type of tournament you're playing in, because every year there's going to be the Tariq Cohen's. What was that? 2019. Oh, it's going yeah. to be the week one Tariq Cohen's where literally people don't know this player exists. Yeah. And they're going to have a huge game. There are players, Elijah Mitchell last year, people were rostering Trey Sermon in week one and he was the number of, he was inactive. I guess you got the news before kickoff. And you're like, well, right. what do I do now? <laughs> you know? and, well, I know and what everyone did, which was play Raheem Mostert at like 60% and then he got hurt. Yeah, and, and so, <laughs> and nobody knew Elijah Mitchell was going to come out and have that. So if you're playing in the Millie maker, let's, let's use that example. Recognize that somebody like Osimo is going to have rosters with these guys that you aren't even thinking about that you might not even know their name you might not even know that they're on the depth chart so you're playing a losing game if you're trying to put one to five entries in the millie maker in week one because you're not going to hit the player pool that that is available to these other guys right you just aren't going to be putting yourself in a plus ev position but if you get into contests that are ten thousand or fewer entries ideally like a couple thousand or fewer entries which is where you can really build your bankroll then for me what i'm really looking for is who are the guys who have an opportunity to massively exceed price-based expectations? So a lot of times those are higher risk, higher reward type guys. So Jahan Dotson, uh, George Pickens, these guys who can score from anywhere on the field. You could say Wondell Robinson as well, except that he could be kind of in that. Well, I, I have a ton of Wondell Robinson in best ball, but yeah. he could be in kind of that uh, Rondell Moore range where it's like passes at the line of scrimmage and then he has to break them for a long run. So it could be like, three points on his bad games and 25 points on his good games. We still don't know. But these guys like Jahan Dotson who have uh, George Pickens, you know, how good is Deontay Johnson? Is there a chance that George Pickens is the best receiver on the Steelers? There's a chance, right? There's a chance that by week seven or eight, and I'm a huge Deontay Johnson truther. We had like a three-week span a couple of years ago when he was under 4,200, and we were just hammering that every week. I, I love Deontay Johnson. But by week seven, George Pickens could be priced higher than Deontay Johnson. And you want to react to that before we get to that point. So, yeah, I want to kind of take some of these unknowns, even in smaller field stuff, because that's where the real savings are. You know, sitting here and saying, well, Christian McCaffrey or Jonathan Taylor or Derrick Henry, the answer is yes. Any of those guys are good on paper plays. Only one of those three is going to put up the best score in week one because that's how it works. But you don't know. And there's really, if you're wasting all your time trying to differentiate between those three guys and which one of these guys do I want to play, you're wasting your time. It has to be, where are the edges? And the edges in week one are, who are these kind of lower priced guys who can actually put up a monster game or mid, mid priced guys who can put up a monster Like a, look at Elijah Moore with Joe Flacco under center in a game where the Jets are going to be trailing. He's priced at 5,100, right? Who are some of these guys that, 
that you can get a monster game from 6x, 7x their salary and really kind of separate from the field. So yeah, week one, I ideally always want to be looking for that. Um, and then ideally not be, you know, a few years ago, I played Nick Foles week one on my, on my one roster because you're down on energy. It's the end of all this work. And then you're like, Nick Foles makes sense. So ideally you're not doing that either, right? Ideally you're making sharp plays as well. And it is, and again, I know I have best ball brain right now, but as a, a proxy sanity check on your Elijah Moore, you look at the other players he's priced around. He's priced around Jarvis Landry. I mean, Elijah Moore is a sixth round pick in best ball leagues. Jarvis Landry goes in the 13th round. You know, he's priced by, you know, Chase Claypool and KJ Osborne, who are double digit round picks. I mean, even just using that, it's like, okay, the best ball market has identified these players who have bigger season long upside. You kind of almost find like an arbitrage thing there. My problem is I agree, 100%. Just like that, that kind of idea of what the market has already kind of showed us in a, in a sharp market. Yeah, we can think in terms of what is this player's salary going to be? And that's one right. of the data points we can use is, well, look at where he's, look who he's being drafted around in best ball. Maybe the field is wrong on this guy, but by and large, the field is going to be correct. And so we can kind of, yeah, use that, like you said, as an arbitrage opportunity and and that's I think one of the data points that we can leverage is where is this guy being drafted and where is he priced? Because I found myself kind of making that calculation as well to figure out what are the sharpest values here. What do you think? I assume we're going to see lots of and this happens on any slates when there's loose pricing or a value opens up that you see the studs and duds builds. I assume we're going to see a massive studs and duds. I mean, it's pretty easy to get your studs and then get your favorite pump play rookies. Do you think that's going to be the chalk build in week one? Probably. Yeah. And I haven't thought through all of that yet. And I'll also say um, from like a playing to your strengths standpoint, um, we have Hilo on our, on our team at one week season. And um, some of you might know Hilo, he does some stuff at Roto world and obviously he's on Twitter and podcasts and stuff, but uh, Hilo's taken game theory courses at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Northwestern. And his main article at the end of the week, every week it's in the scroll is called the end around. And what he basically does is he builds the chalk build before the slate kicks off. And it's always right in terms of not, not necessarily the exact players, but here's where everyone's going to allocate salary. And then here's how we can flip the salary structure of our builds around to just differentiate ourselves right away. So I'll let him kind of speak to that in terms of where people are going to go this week, because my mind hasn't gotten that deep into this yet. But generally speaking, yeah, you're going to expect, people are gonna say, well, I can get these cheap guys. I can get these high priced guys. Let me do that. And then we have to think about is there is the, is my differentiator changing up my pricing structure or on this week where there is value is my differentiator finding like building blocks and doing things differently than other people are doing because you never want to pivot off one cheap guy to another to try to be different because a lot of times you're just taking a lesser guy that's all you're doing but on a week like this there might be some guys who are going overlooked who are these you know lesser guys we don't know because there's so much unknown so we can kind of embrace that unknown a little bit more and position ourselves in that way so yeah i, I think that duds and duds and scrubs is that what we call it zeros and yes. heroes whatever, whatever it is like we'll probably see that but i don't know that necessarily the way to combat that is to just allocate your salary differently i think that there's still lots of ways you could build like that and be different and then obviously you can always allocate salary differently to be different 
So let's put some of these ideas on their feet. Obviously, going forward, JM and I are, uh, JM and I are going to record these live. They'll be live. We're pre-recording this one because we got a lot going on this week. I'm going to be traveling later in the week. But normally, these will be live Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll be able to get some of your guys' comments and questions. And we'll also obviously be diving into more specific slate dynamics, uh, but still want to really maintain kind of the theory element because I think that's what JM does extremely well. And I know you guys just over the years, have I've gotten really good feedback of when we we do focus on uh, that boat teaching people to fish as opposed to uh, giving them the plays. But let, let's you know give the people ultimately what they want here. They see a lineup getting on the DraftKings screen uh, screen here and and maybe talking through the concept of a building blocks for for week one and we can see what uh, what we arrive at. Yeah, so we see here that we have a 50, 555 entry contest. And so one of the first things we want to do is think about how we're building for this specific contest. So I referenced earlier the Mariota, Pitts, Drake, London, uh, you know, stack building block. And it was like, well, you don't need that for a contest like this. So one of the uh, building blocks that Pete and I talked about before the show that we're going to start this roster with is Trey Lance and Elijah Mitchell. And Pete, as you put that in, I'm going to explain why this makes sense. And the reason I say it like that is because the first reaction to this is that doesn't make sense. So we think of Elijah Mitchell as a guy who doesn't catch passes. He actually had multiple games last year with five receptions or four or five receptions. The thing is they don't throw that much. They don't throw to running backs that much, right? So we can say he doesn't catch passes. You see a five catch game, five catch game. There's like a three, four catch game. But in the games where he's not catching passes and he's healthy, he's probably getting carries. So let's just look at the carries. We want to, again, when we're doing a building block, we kind of think about this as a block of players where we say, let me just treat their production as one block that costs X amount. So it costs 11.4K for these two guys. Now let's assume, so 11.4K, our target score is about 45 points for 4X. It's week one, so we might need 5X to keep us on a pace for 250 points. But let's paint the picture of how these guys get to 4X. And Pete, feel free to interrupt me at any point because otherwise no, I'll talk for, for like three minutes straight <laughs> on this. But the let's, uh, and I want to walk through the actual thought process on this because it's important to understand why we're playing these guys, but also it helps you see, okay, this is how I can think through these player blocks, these pairings. So the idea here is, okay, these guys cost... 11.4K in combined salary. We need about 45 points, ideally 55 or more points. Can they get there? Let's paint the picture. So let's just take their rushing attempts. Let's not look at over-unders. Let's not bring in preconceived notions and biases. Let's say what could happen in this game. Well, is 27 to 30 rush attempts reasonable for these two guys combined? We expect Trey Lance to get anywhere from five to 10 carries. We expect Elijah Mitchell in a game where the 49ers are controlling things to have 20 plus carries. We also know that people, because Elijah Mitchell was a sixth round pick and people didn't know he was going to be the starter last year, their, their perception of him is he's probably going to lose the job this season. We dealt with this with Chris Carson for years. People wouldn't play him because they always felt like he was kind of a backup in a starter's role. That's not the case. The 49ers love Elijah Mitchell. He's healthy. He's going to get the majority of the, of the RB1 snaps. So let's say 30 carries. Well, let's give them you know, five and a half yards per carry, which Elijah Mitchell should be four and a half to five throughout the season. Trey Lance should be well above that. So five and a half yards per carry. And all of a sudden we're sitting at 175 rushing yards. We'd probably get a hundred yard bonus from one of these guys. So that puts us at 20, basically about 20 points. Now, how many points do we get from Trey Lance passing? Minimum 10 to 15 points, right? Let's say, let's say eight points. Let's say we get 
eight points, Trey Lance passing plus Elijah Mitchell catches. Let's say we get 10 points. Trey Lance passes for only 200 yards. Elijah Mitchell catches only one pass, right? We're not going crazy on our projections here. This gets us to 30 combined points just from adding those eight extra points for Trey Lance, two points for a, an Elijah Mitchell 10-yard catch. Now we're at 30 points. How many touchdowns are going to be scored on this team that don't come from Trey Lance or Elijah Mitchell? The only way touchdowns are being scored that don't come from one of these two guys is Elijah Mitchell has been on the field the whole drive and gets subbed out at like the 17-yard line and Jeff Wilson scores, or Debo Samuel runs one in. So that's like 15% chance that the touchdowns don't come from these guys. So 85% of the time, we're getting all of the 49ers touchdowns. So now what happens if the 49ers score four touchdowns in this game, even three touchdowns in this game, we're almost at our 4X mark. Two passing touchdowns, one rushing touchdown from these two guys combined, we're up to about 44 points. And these are not, you know, typically when we're talking about, hey, can you play these guys together in a GPP? We're talking about like, we're like, hey, this game could play out this way. And these guys could get to 4X or even 5X if these crazy things happen. But we're in week one, pricing's a little softer. Trey Lance, you know, people will be a little concerned to play him. They'll want to play him because of the rushing upside, but a little concerned. And then nobody's going to be excited about playing Elijah Mitchell. So these two won't carry super high ownership and together combinatorial ownership will be incredibly low because nobody will think about a block like this. And we're already on very basic projections at a 4X. And to get to 5X, all we need is a couple more catches for Elijah Mitchell, some bigger runs, uh, you know, another touchdown and a couple of these other things going away. If 49ers score four touchdowns, then we'd probably give some extra yards and, and catches to these guys or whatever it is. And we end up with 55 points from these two. So taking these guys as a block and then breaking down the numbers, we realize, oh, well, uh, like a bad game from them is still going to be about 35 to 40 points. And even that keeps you on a pace for like 175 point score. But a good game, we always want to target 200 plus points, uh, basically just a 60th percentile game you're getting your 4X and then you still have a, a clear pathway to 5X or above. Now, last thing I'll say on this is the pushback is, yeah, but you're capping your ceiling by taking these two guys together. And this is where we want to understand the contest that we're in. These guys probably can't get you a 7X combined. They can right. get you a 5X. There are realistic scenarios, but like 90th percentile scenarios where they get you like a five and a half X where they combine for 60 points, 30 and 30, right? But they probably won't do that. But if you're in a contest with 555 entries where floor also matters because you want to keep boosting your roster up across the board, well, now you're starting your roster with a pretty clear shot at a 4X and a, a reasonable chance at hitting a 5X better than you could with 11.4K in salary spent anywhere else. And you can find your 6Xs and 7Xs in other spots. But to just lock in a 3.5X to 5X from a from over 20% of your salary is so valuable from a starting point. And so these guys don't have to be the, the guys who absolutely win you the contest, but just saying, look, from this starting point, I've now have fewer things that need to go right for me. And I'm ahead of the field in terms of where my starting salary is putting me with total points. Yeah. And the other reason I really like that too is, I mean, I think everyone admits that 
Trey Lance has one of the wider range of outcomes of, of any player heading into this year. I mean, like you said, uh, a lot of smart people think a 1,000 yard rushing season is in play, which is kind of what you were hinting at there with. It's not that hard for him and these guys to combine for 30 rush attempts. I mean, Eli Mitchell had a stretch last year. We were just pulling up the game log where he was averaging 25 a game, and, and Lance could easily have 10 rushing attempts. So I love that. And I do think it's a time to capitalize on uncertainty around Trey Lance, where there still is this lingering thing. I've seen it in best ball ADP where people are legitimately worried about Jimmy Garoppolo as the backup quarterback and not saying that that affects us on a one week thing, but that kind of fear permeates into this stuff and will probably keep his ownership low. So I love that idea. I mean, the other only cold water on this is just, I mean, the Vegas has this as a really low scoring game. I think it's a 41 and a half point over under uh, the Niners on the road. So I could see that scaring people away as they kind of head toward the more shootout heavy game environments. Yeah. And I'm fine with people staying away, right? Like one of the things we think about too, with Vegas projections is Vegas projections are efficient because they can get 50% of the money on either side. And so over time, the public's going to get the right line, but there are games with a 41 over under that have a broad range of scoring distribution on either side. And then there are games with a 41 over under that have a narrow range of scoring distribution on either side, right? Also, the let, like, let's look at the Texans and Colts last year. Two games, Texans and Colts. One game, the Colts won, I, I think this is off the top of the head, but I think it was one game, the Colts won 31 nothing. one they won 31 to three. Those games were both incredibly low scoring games, right? Both were under 40 total points. And yet the Colts scored four touchdowns in both of them. So anytime we can get a four touchdown game from guys priced here in this sort of mid tier and nobody's on them and nobody's on them combined, that gives us a really nice edge. So do the 49ers score three touchdowns? That's the question I'm asking. And I think this 49ers team is going to be really good. I think that they're going to have a lot of short fields this week. Honestly, you could throw the 49ers defense in with this and it would still work for the bet that you're making if you think they stay aggressive throughout because they can score five touchdowns, one from the defense and four from Lance and Mitchell. And that's still a realistic way for this game to play out. And so, yeah, the the low total in my mind, it just scares people off and that benefits us even more because all we need is this team. We don't need a shootout. We just need no. this team to score three to four touchdowns. Anything over that is just continuous bonus on top of what we're already getting. So what would be the next direction you would like to take this lineup? Do you think about another block here or do you think about one-off pieces? What, what, what direction do we go? Week one, we could do any number of things. <laughs> we could go, we could say, okay, what is the, I like to go from like a low salary up so that we are not forcing in low salary at the end that can lead to bad decisions. So you could say, you know, what's the defense I want to use or what's kind of, what's one of the lower cost values that I want to use. So Pete, I'll throw, we don't have to correlate anything yet. I'll throw some low cost values at you. We have Wandell Robinson is 3K. We have Jahan Dotson is 3.4K. We have George Pickens is 4.1K. We have, um, I think that's about the list that I want to touch on in that in that what? range. But I don't know if there are any other guys that you've thought of uh, on this, in this range. No, I, of those three rookies, I, I gravitate toward Dotson, uh, has the highest draft capital of those guys, has been kind of undervalued throughout the offseason relative to where he's going to those other guys. George Pickens, such a sexy name. I could see him being pretty popular. And Robinson as well. We've had so much negative news about Galladay, uncertainty with 
with Kadarius Tony. I could see those two guys being really popular. And I feel like Dotson is kind of the guy that could just have a massive role right out of the gate that, that people quickly wake up on. Yeah. I think Dotson, if we talk about who's going to be the top three to five receivers out of this draft class, five years from now, I would say <clears throat> maybe this is a hot take, but I would say Dotson Pickens and Khalil Shakir on the bills. Oh, would be, wow. That is a scorching um, hot take. <laughs> would be the, at least three of the top five from this draft class. But yeah, and people just aren't going to be on Dotson. Obviously Shakir is not going to be getting playing time yet. Um, Dotson. So the next thing I would want to ask is, do we need to correlate Dotson in any way? Like does a big Dotson game mean that the Jaguars are having a big game? We get into this habit of auto-correlating and you feel like you're doing something wrong if you're not. But Dotson's priced at 3,400 and he can put up a 20 plus point game. You don't, if you're paying 7K for a wide receiver and they put up a 20 point game, you're disappointed, A, and B, that's not a game environment where it's like, oh my God, this game went crazy. You don't have to bet on this game going crazy. I actually do like Wentz stacks this week if I'm in larger field stuff, but I wouldn't necessarily correlate this to any other Jaguars pieces not to say that you couldn't but right. that's not a bet that you have to make and so in this place I'm comfortable not doing that so one I want to get your thought on we had talked about the Jonathan Taylor thing you know assuming a lot of people are going to pay up for an elite running back just because it's so easy people are going to be very attracted to that Taylor matchup versus Texans my mind immediately goes to we're already kind of going low at running back with Mitchell what if we pay up for one of these elite wide receivers, knowing it's going to be a little harder for Jonathan Taylor teams to do. Yeah, I love it. Let's do it. And and I think that there's a lot of different ways we can go, right? I was just eyeing Joe Mixon over there because he's one of the higher priced running backs that people won't be on, which also draws mm -hmm. my eye to Jamar Chase over here. Although Chase will probably be a little bit higher owned. We also have this uh, Green Bay, Minnesota game where people might be off Justin Jefferson because he's facing Jair Alexander. And if mm -hmm. we can get lower ownership there, then that's a place that we could consider going. If his ownership's kind of in that 10 to 12% range, then you just say, well, what do I actually think here? And recognize once you play Jefferson, we're going to play other pieces from that game because you're betting on 7,800, you're betting on a very particular game flow. So that's one that we could go to. Another game that I think is fun to kind of look at and consider stacking up is that Vegas and, and Chargers game yeah. where you can get Devontae Adams and do something else with him. So I'll let you kind of pick where we go here and then we'll see what we add to that roster. Let's let's go this Justin Jefferson route, partly because I do think the Packers are such a fascinating team. I mean, we even got news uh, this morning. We are recording this on uh, on Monday that Alan Lazard is legitimately questionable for this week, which would just make that wide receiver depth chart completely wide open. So I want to hear your wheels turn with how you would think about approaching Green Bay with Jefferson in the lineup. Well, I didn't see that Lazard news yet. That changes things. I'm a big Lazard truther this year. He's 5,600 in week one in a nice matchup. Um, yeah. So at this point, then, you know, I'll say it like this. Justin Jefferson needs a, like a 31 to 34 game to pay off this salary. Mm -hmm. And we get in the habit of paying 7,800 for a guy and being happy if he gets 24 points. But if he gets 24 points, that's really hurting you. You need him to get 30 plus points in order to really win a tournament because we're not happy with cashing. We're thinking about winning a tournament. So what we're thinking about is that we're not predicting that Jefferson gets 40 points. We're just saying as soon as we put him on our roster, we know that that's what we need in order to win this tournament. And so if he gets 40 points, 
what are the associated bets with that? So one way we could go is we could go something like Aaron Jones and recognize that people aren't going to think of pairing it that way. You get the pass catching back and a lot of upside, although Aaron Jones is typically pretty overpriced for his actual role. Yeah. Another way we could go is we could say, OK, the Packers have some cheaper wideouts and maybe the targets won't be concentrated, but maybe they'll spread them out. Right. So this is we're, we're really taking some leaps here for a 555 entry with the um, uncertainty on the Packers. But you could say if we think that Romeo Doves is going to be playing if Lazard is out. And well, I guess you and I, we could go one of two ways. We could just say, look, let's assume Lazard is playing and we could put him in. Or we could say, let's assume Lazard is out. And what would we do then? And I think if he's out, I would pair like people will have Jefferson and Dubs. That's not going to be a low owned stack. What people won't have is Jefferson, Dubs and Randall Cobb, right? right? Coming out of the slot. And so something like that, where you take, again, it's going to cost around seven point something K in salary to get both guys together and, or, oh, wow, Cobb's even 6.4 6. 6. Yeah. 6. K to get both these guys together. And you could say, do I think that if I were paying 6.4 K for a wide receiver, would I be happy with the targets these guys are getting in this instance? Probably. And this is maybe a little bit more like guesswork than you necessarily need to take on at a 555 entry. But let's go with this because I think that the discussion around these types of things is, is what's really important to understand. Okay, well. Jefferson needs this to be a high scoring game. If this is a high scoring game, probably two of these Packers wideouts are paying off their salary. And sure, Romeo Dubs is going to be the big name if Lazard is out, but you can pair him with Cobb or Watkins. I, Cobb's the guy for me just because that those consistent targets in the short area role is is uh, more bankable than whatever Sammy Watkins might get. For sure. And this is the later game. So you are going to have the knowledge of the major chunk. You mentioned Wandell Robinson being a popular guy who's also playing late. You know, Dubs probably a pretty nice pivot one for one off that. Um, so you're going to have a lot of information there. Leaves us with 7,000 remaining per yeah, position. We're, so we're going to be able to spend. One, man. Yeah, yeah. We, we can. So what I want to do is, yeah, we can go to defense, but I, I want to real quickly talk about tight end and just yep. say on a week like this, I'm less likely to dig around in tight end value because yeah. the tight end values are the guys who are going to get you 10 to 12 points if they hit yep. and there's value in other spots. So I'm comfortable just saying, you know, let's grab Mark Andrews or let's grab Travis Kelsey. One of these guys that we like the most and feel comfortable with, he doesn't have to correlate to anything else. It's just a bet on I'm getting whatever the highest points are here or expose myself to that and not trying to get uh, value here. So Pick one of those guys, and then we can see what our salary looks like for defense and running back, which probably should allow us to do whatever we want. Yeah, let's go Mark Andrews. I think with how banged up the Ravens running backs are, I just can't imagine the team being so stubborn that they want to give, you know, Mike Davis and Kedya Drake, you know, 40 combined touches or whatever. So let's hope that uh, they lean on the passing game here and go with Mark Andrews. Yeah, and I love that for week one. I've had the same thought in that I expect the Ravens to be a lot more run heavy this year. Yeah, because not because the pass heavy stuff didn't work last year, but because all last year I felt that the pass heavy stuff was out of necessity. They had no running backs left, so they went pass heavy. But I think that we're still in that situation. Drake and Mike Davis are best suited to pass catching roles. I think we could see the Ravens passing the ball more this week than they will deeper into the season. And therefore, Mark Andrews gets those targets. I think it's a really sharp play here. And yeah, we well, you know, once we spend for the highest defense, we've still got 10 K and salary left over. So yeah, there's some tweaking to do on a roster like this, yes. but you know, we could go something like Titans plus Derrick Henry 
um, and have something that's very different from like a different running back and a different pairing than the field. And then you kind of massage that other 2,100 in salary and figure out where you want to go. You know, you don't want to leave off the Packers because you are betting on that game flow. So it would be jumping from Dotson up to one of these, you know, Elijah Moore's or these other 5k wide receivers right. and getting Dotson on a different team, basically Pittman to leverage off of, you could go Pittman to Ooh. leverage off of Jonathan Taylor. We have Derrick Henry. So it's a nice leverage there. Are they likeliest to pass the ball a lot against Houston? No, but we also don't know. And all we're really saying is, hey, the touchdowns could come through the air. Pittman's right. going to have his seven, eight targets regardless. So um, gives us a really nice roster, a lot of good leverage off the field. We're doing something very different and it's still very sharp for, you know, we're taking on some risks with the Packers guys and the uncertainty that I might not do in a 555 entry. But if you're putting this in a contest with 5,000 rosters, I mean, this this is a banging roster in terms of, high floor, high ceiling, and very different from what everybody else is doing. What I really liked about that is I think the temptation for me and maybe a lot of people when you came to that dead end with all the salary would have been to upgrade one of Dobbs or Cobb just because eh, this looks like the gross part of my lineup. And I really liked that you pushed it to the Dotson, which was a one-off uncorrelated piece where we've already told a clear story about how Justin Jefferson gets there. And like you said, we need those Packers guys to do it. And so I do like if you are fiddling then with a piece, you don't want to fiddle with the block at that point you want to fiddle with one of those one-off options yeah and that was my first thought is okay well let's get rid of Cobb right like that's what you right, want yeah. to do but then Jefferson's not putting up 40 points and and only one Packers receiver is getting any action you know and so you have to think about what is this particular roster telling what is this roster's best path to first place and then challenge yourself to say well Dotson was one of our first guys because we liked him and yet he doesn't fit on this roster. I'll play him on a different roster somewhere else. Awesome. Well, uh, don't don't dupe us, but uh, you know we reserve the rights to uh, to change this lineup going forward. But no, the, the whole point <laughs> the whole point of these building box things is to show you guys how we think through building a lineup. And I do think this is a, it's a wild west week, but hopefully that gives you guys kind of an idea of how to think through that decision tree and uh, anything else uh, I'm forgetting here, Jam, before we wrap up, super excited to have this as a recurring show on the channel this year and working with you guys in one week season. Yeah, we went a little bit long today, which um, we'll obviously try to tighten up, but I think that today and this week, there was a lot to get to. It felt like it, it felt like 30 minutes um, for, for me, hopefully it felt like that for you guys watching, but the um, yeah, I mean, nothing else to add for me. Just I'm so excited to be doing this show every week. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think that, We'll get to so much good stuff throughout the season. For sure. And uh, I will post this. I know some of you guys are audio guys. I will post this, the audio for all of these GPP strategy shows with JM on the In a Vacuum podcast feed. I'll have the links down below. Um, you'll miss a little of the visual elements, but still get all of that good stuff. And uh, I am recording this a little early, but I'm going to announce here to some of what my programming is going to look like for the DFS season just throughout the week. I'll continue doing my Monday morning 10 a.m. show instead of best ball breakfast. That'll just morph into the GPP lineup review. Uh, we'll obviously on uh, Fridays be doing this show with JM. I'm going to be doing my Saturday or Sunday morning crunch 
uh, Cram streams. I'm going to make that for YouTube members only this year. So if you are a member on the channel, you will have access to that. It's going to be a more intimate group this year, but it'll allow us to really dive into some more unique decisions and kind of take your questions. And uh, I'll have more news about uh, Tilt Space and lulls and the timing of all that stuff. But wanted to put that stuff on your radar. Very much excited to get going with DFS. I think we're going to have an awesome year. Make sure you check out the free week over on one week season links down below, explore it, see if you like it. And then you can make the decision for week two, if you want to continue with us. So for JM, I'm Pete. We'll see you guys next time here on the Pete and JM GPP show.